0: Well, hey, we've been in a series called Won't You Be My Neighbor, talking about how can we be better neighbors, Uh, not so much just in our way we think, but actually in the way we live, Uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And so if you've missed any of the weeks up to this point, I encourage you to go to our website, albanync.org, and and pick up any of those messages where we've been to this point, because we don't have time this morning to review those. But here's the deal. Jesus demonstrated for us, not only through his incarnation, but through his earthly teaching, the best way to do this. In fact, John captures it well in John chapter 1. This is from the Message Translation. It says, it says this, that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Aren't you glad we serve a God who wasn't afraid to step into our lives, step into our world, to be right among us, to walk among those who are broken, those that need him, those that are maybe not even thinking they need him, but because he comes into close proximity, they're like, wow, we need this Jesus. And he wasn't afraid to be that great neighbor. And I think the challenge for us is how can we emulate that in the way that we live? And in previous weeks, I challenged us to kind of lift our eyes from our own comfort, from our own stuff, from our own needs, and begin to look around us. Begin to look at the fact that neighbors are all around us. In fact, there are neighbors that are quite literally right next to you. But the problem is, too many of us live in an isolated bubble where we don't even know the name of our neighbor. We don't even know what's going on in their life. And the reason we don't is because we have created barriers that keep us isolated and and sometimes keep them outside. And today I want to talk about the fact that I believe Jesus is calling us to, to overcome these barriers that we've created to being a better neighbor. And that's going to require a, a change of thinking. The way we approach neighboring has to become different. So today I want to talk about overcoming barriers so that we can become better neighbors. Let me give you an example. In, in the Indonesian constitution, there is a, an allowance for a religious freedom. In fact, in Indonesia, you'll find evangelical churches, Muslim churches, Hindu, Catholic, and so forth because they are, they are open to various religions. But, but listen to this story for a minute. About uh, 150 to 200 years ago, Christian missionaries went into Indonesia, and and so did Muslim missionaries. And I want to talk about the difference to their approach. Christian missionaries did a lot of good things. They had built hospitals. They had built some schools. um, They had obviously built churches. But many of those that they had constructed were inside a compound. They were walled around to keep, obviously, them safe. And create kind of a come-to-us mentality. When the Islamic missionaries went into the area, they moved into neighborhoods. They inserted themselves into culture. They lived among other people. Christians had a compound mentality. The Islamic people had a neighborhood mentality. And today, 87% of Indonesia is Muslim. What if missionaries at that point, while they had great intentions and did very good things, what if they did it a bit differently? What if they did it a little bit more organically where they moved in and, and were among people? I'm thankful for the work of Christian missionaries and the things that happened, but friends, they sometimes miss, just like we do, the big point, which is getting in and doing life with people is what really matters. In fact, this is what Jesus said when he was asked to summarize all of Scripture, Right? He gave two commands, love God and what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything hangs on loving God and loving our neighbors. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, I want you to hear this because maybe you haven't thought about this concerning your neighbors this way before. But it says this, that God determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Here's a question. Is it possible that God has strategically placed you exactly where you are for a very exact purpose at a very exact moment in time? I mean, You might think that you chose your house. You might think that somehow you chose to come to Albany and, and maybe you had some choice in, in all of that. But can, is it possible that God is at work in that? If we really kind of take this Acts passage to heart and recognize God's hand is at work. Is it possible that maybe your neighborhood or your neighbor is one of those reasons that God placed you in the neighborhood in which you are in? Could it be possible he has a work for you to do? Is it possible that God is even working among the hearts of your neighbors in ways you don't even know? Because you're very intentional at work. You go, you have things to do, you're very intentional. Some of you are very intentional at school. Some are very intentional in your social events. But when you go home, you drop your intentionality. What if we lived intentionally right where we live, among our neighbors? So here's a quick exercise to show us how intentional we might be when it comes to neighboring. On the the screen here is a chart that's, uh, we'll call it a neighborhood map. And if this was to be your neighborhood, I know yours may not look exactly like this. Some of you might live kind of in, in the outskirts of town where your neighbors are a little bit farther apart. But I want you to think about the eight people who live closest to you. All right? So place your house in the center and think about the eight people around you. And if you want to, you can jot this in your bulletin where you can take notes. Uh, if you're using the Bible app today to follow along, there's a grid in the Bible app you can see as well. You'll notice in this grid there's A, B, and C. What I want you to think about is the letter A would be the names of your eight neighbors. And if you know the names of your eight neighbors around you, you, just, you can just write them down. The B would be something that you know about your neighbor. It's some piece of information, but not something you would know just by looking out your window at them or standing on your driveway. It would be something you would know out of a basic conversation with them, like maybe what their job is, maybe the names of their kids, so forth. And then C would be something deeper that you would know through a prolonged conversation or longer time spent with your neighbor. It might be things like their hopes and dreams. Their purpose, their faith, their beliefs, the challenges they're facing, the struggles they're in the midst of. Here's what I've discovered in reading a book that people that took this survey figured out. 10% of those who took this neighborhood map survey could complete A. Only 10% knew the name of all eight of their neighbors around them. 3% could fill out B, which means they knew something more about their neighbor that had to happen from a conversation they had with their neighbor. Only 3% could fill out other information, and only 1% could complete C, speaking to the hopes or dreams or the struggles or the beliefs of their neighbor. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of of how well you would do on a survey like this because I, I myself have taken the survey and discovered that I have some work to do. But why is it? If we're called to love our neighbor, how can we love a neighbor we don't even know their name? How can we love a neighbor and we don't even know what's going on in their life? How can we say we love a neighbor but not really know what they're wrestling with, or what their beliefs are, what their hopes or dreams are? How can we say we love neighbors if we can't actually love the person on either side of our actual house? Now, I know when I start talking about literal neighbors, some guards go up because you're like, well, you don't know my neighbor. You don't know how annoying they are or their dog is or their kids are. You don't know how loud they play their music at God-awful times in the evening. You don't know. You don't know. You're right. I don't know. I, I I have my own neighbors, okay? But for a moment, could I imagine that God has called me to actually love them? See, here's something funny about what Jesus said. We hear things like, love your neighbor as yourself, and we tend to make that a very broad and general command. And we go, oh, I love all people that God created. And I think as Christians, you probably have learned the correct answer to say that I I love everybody as God would love them. Because it's easy to love a nameless, faceless, mass of people. And the reality is when we say that our neighbor is everybody, then nobody really is your neighbor. You see the point? But when that neighbor has a name, has an address, and it's next to yours, how do you do it loving them? Because we have to be careful not to overgeneralize this command. Yes, we should love all people. We talked about that two weeks ago. That when it comes to a neighbor, it doesn't matter their gender, their lifestyle, their race, their social standing. They are people made in the image of God and we should love all people. And that's that's true. But today I want to bring it a little more home. Because it's easy to say, yeah, I love all those people. But what about the people right next to you? Right behind you, right across the street from you, do you love them? Because here's the thing. We don't just love the neighbors that we choose, but the ones God chooses for us. Because there are neighbors that you would choose. You might work with them. You might go to club with them. You might be at the gym with them. You might go to church with them. And it's easy to love those neighbors because they're like you. But what about the neighbors that God chooses for you? If we take Acts 17 seriously, we have to recognize where I live in close proximity to others. God has placed me there. That means God has chosen those neighbors for me. And I've been chosen for those neighbors. Because God is not just at work on Sundays at church. Can you believe that he's at work in the everyday life of the stuff of life and how you neighbor? He's at work, so we can't miss this application. So why don't we get to know our neighbors better? Why do we choose to live in isolation? Why do we choose to open the garage door, pull our car in, close the garage door, and live in our backyard that's fenced and never know the name of our neighbors? We might know our neighbor's dog's name because we yell across the fence for the dog to shut up, but we don't know our neighbors. Why? Because we have created barriers. And it's not just shrubbery or bushes or fences. These are far more subtle, far more internal barriers that we have created that really keep us from knowing the people right around us and therefore loving the people God has chosen for us to love that live right around us. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 because we're going to see kind of a parallel story to our own. Through the life of the Apostle Peter. Now, as you look at this story with me, you're going to recognize that Peter isn't called to love the person that lives right next door to him. I looked for a Bible story about a neighbor, and it was hard to find an exact story. I mean, there's the Good Samaritan. We already used that last time. But this story helps us understand some of the barriers that, like Peter, had to go over. We have to overcome to actually be a good neighbor to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and I, and I hope that in this message, you feel challenged, that you'll leave this, this service going, you know what, I'm going to map out my neighborhood, and I'm going to get to know my neighbors, their names. I'm going to begin to pray for them. I'm going to begin to recognize God has called me to love those who are in close proximity. But some of you, that's hard to do right now because of these barriers. So Acts chapter 10 shows us the story If you want to use your Bible app, you can do that as well. There's Bibles in the seat in front of you down on the rack. Just take that and open it up to Acts chapter 10. It says this, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment, which was part of the Roman empire, okay? He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear, what is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told him everything that had happened to him and sent them to Joppa. So there's one part of the story. Okay? What we're going to see in Cornelius is the neighbor that God is calling us to love, but some barriers that we have to overcome to do that. So story A, one perspective is from Cornelius' point. He's a Roman soldier, but he's God-fearing, and he's kind to the Jews. But you have to understand that there is a cultural, there is a racial tension between them The Gentiles, and now the story about Peter, who is a Jew. About noon, verse 9 says, The following day, as they were approaching, or as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened in something like a large sheet let down to earth by its four corners. In it contained all kinds of four. Uh, Footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate, and they called out, asking of Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so they could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The story goes on as you'll read more of, of Acts chapter 10 that Peter then journeys the next day with these men, goes into the house of Cornelius. What we don't understand about this story is that Jews never entered into the residence of a Gentile, Never. He just didn't do that. In fact, Peter makes it a point, and you'll see it in the text, he makes it a point to basically say to them that it's against the law for us to even associate with you Gentiles. But in the course of Peter being willing to cross these barriers, to overcome these barriers that would have kept him out, we see that Cornelius, his entire household, is saved. It's a beautiful kind of story ending, but I want to look for a moment at the barriers that Peter had to overcome to become the same kind of barriers we ourselves have to overcome to actually be that kind of neighbor God is calling us to. And the first one is the prejudice barrier, the prejudice barrier. As you look at the story, you have to ask the question, why did God give Peter this very specific dream? As you think about it, Peter was was hungry, so it could have been, you know, a a hunger-inspired dream, but I don't think so. God had given him a very specific vision, and it had to do with clean and unclean animals. And as a Jewish boy, he would have learned all the rules about the animals you can eat and the ones that are unclean. But the story is not about animals. The story is about people. And the Jews had considered certain groups of people unclean. And God was beginning to chip at the prejudice that had been in Peter's heart as a young boy. And still even as an apostle who had been with Jesus, who saw Jesus meet with some very different people, and take Peter and his friends into very uncomfortable environments as he was preaching and teaching, and crossing all kinds of cultural barriers. Jesus had no problem crossing, but yet Peter was kind of entrenched with, with this. And so he has a vision, and I think it's interesting This vision happens in coordination with the story of Cornelius because he's trying to prepare Peter to overcome his prejudice. And what's equally important in the story, I mean, we have Cornelius' salvation and that's wonderful. That, That conversion is beautiful. But you know what else is beautiful? The conversion of Peter. To begin thinking differently about those that were around him. Because we all have prejudice. You know what prejudice means? It means a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. The truth is, we've all made some preconceived decisions, opinions about our neighbors, the ones that live right around you. You've maybe even made that decision without even having a conversation with them. But because of what you see or what you perceive to be true, you've made prejudice. You've made decisions about them. That probably, if the truth were to be told, are totally unfounded. This past week, I had the opportunity with my kids to watch a great movie that I'd recommend. I don't recommend many movies, but we went and watched Wonder. And if you haven't watched Wonder yet, one, go watch it. Two, bring a tissue box with you uh, because you're going to need it. But it's a great movie, and I won't, it's, I'm not going to give the whole storyline away, but it's based on a book that my daughter is actually reading right now called Wonder, and it's basically the story of a, of a very disfigured boy who'd been homeschooled for most of his childhood because of, of his appearance, and he was going to finally go to public school, middle school. And so as the story unfolds, you kind of see the lens of going to school as a very disfigured child from his perspective, and it's very moving very moving. But then what I also appreciate about the way the author writes the book and the screenplay happened is then they also take time for you to see the story from other people's perspective. And as you begin to see the story from their perspective, it begins to make some sense to you. The problem with being prejudiced is we're not willing to step into somebody else's story and look at it from their perspective. Your neighbor might annoy you, but you may not know their story of what's going on in their life. You've made a preconceived idea about them without stepping into their story or knowing or caring because this prejudice barrier has kept you at arm's length away from your neighbor. But I love it. In the book itself, there's a quote. It wasn't in the movie, but in the book, the author writes this, the book wonder, if every person in this room made it a rule that wherever you are, whenever you can, you will try to act a little kinder than is necessary, the world really would be a better place. And if you do this, if you act just a little kinder than is necessary, someone else, somewhere, someday, may recognize in you, in every single one of you, the face of God. Just a little bit kinder to your neighbor. Just a little bit kinder means to crawl into their story, overcome that prejudice barrier. So how do we, we, squ- how do we squash that barrier? By willing, being willing to step into their stories, to stop making assumptions, stop developing opinions, and start having a conversation. And in that conversation, the goal is, is listening, not to be heard, but to listen, to understand, and to build a relationship with your neighbor. You may not agree with your neighbor, but understand where they're coming from. There's a second barrier called the comfort barrier. Isn't that true we're creatures of comfort? I discovered that even this past weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. I ate all kinds of comfort food. The next day, my wife made a big, big pot of chicken, actually turkey noodle soup. Talk about comfort food, sitting in my recliner, watching the games, blanket on my lap. You know, we all love comfort. But isn't it true that comfort keeps us from things? You know, part of what we like about comfort is the fact that we have a sense that we're in control. We're comfortable when we feel like we're in control. We get uncomfortable when we lose a sense of control. And here's the thing about relationships. We can't really control those very well, can we? When you try to control a relationship, what happens? It sucks the life out of it for one thing. So, when you get into a relationship which is kind of messy, you're stepping into some pretty uncomfortable territory, especially when it comes to your neighbors. You're stepping into some uncomfortable territory. And in this Acts passage, we see Peter, and he's resting on the roof of the house where he's staying. Picture with me, it's noon, it's warm. Lunch is cooking. He goes upstairs to, for the hour of prayer, and uh, it's a nice cross breeze coming in from the sea, and he's enjoying that into the shelter that's there at the top of that. It's a very beautiful and serene scene where we see Peter, and he's praying. You can almost kind of see him folding his hands and, and just praying. And, and then God has the nerve, in the midst of that very comfortable scene for Peter, to interrupt his day, to interrupt his comfort and say, Peter, I, I've got something for you, There's three men downstairs they are looking for you. Go with them. Don't hesitate, but go. It was both this divine guidance and Peter's then willingness to grasp that maybe God was showing him something, that combined together produced a change in his thinking. And then he obeyed, and that passion for obedience makes God's servants open to the change with which they at first might be very uncomfortable. Some of you have felt that before. God's called you outside of your comfort zone and you stepped into that space that was very uncomfortable. Maybe it was in relationship building or maybe it was a new job or maybe it was a relationship with a neighbor where it was just, there's kind of that awkward space between you and the neighbor and, and God's calling you into that space. But here's the deal. Peter was willing to do that. In, in Peter, we find a person who was willing to live with the uncomfortable, and because of that, it helped him to be open to God's surprises. Now, here's the question. How do we overcome this comfort barrier? The sense that we got to kind of control everything, because that makes us feel comfortable. We yield control to the one who's in control. Right? God is ultimately in control of everything, right? Including your neighbor's and your neighbor's dog. God's in control. So overcoming this comfort barrier means yielding control to him. And when we make that shift from being in control to having confidence in the God who is in control, that's when we step from our comfort zone to to his mission zone. And it's in that mission zone that divine surprises await us, like the one Peter's about to walk into. Then there's the time barrier. Who has time, right? In our video we saw before the sermon, it was always about time. I don't have time to help. We're always a very hurried and busy people. And this divine interruption on the rooftop ended up lasting a week. I mean, think about it for a minute. How many of you could give up a week right now to a divine interruption? Some of you could, but some are like, I don't, have time. I don't have room for that, God. I don't have room. I mean, he goes up to pray for what he thought was going to be an hour. And God asked him to give a week to the adventure that awaited. It's obvious to me that Peter set his clock according to God's design for time and not his own. And I know you're thinking, but I have a family to raise. I have a job to do. I have, you know, I have all these things. Yes, but here's the question. Who ultimately is in control of your time? Right? The Bible tells us that God has the number of our days. So imagine for a moment with me all the things that Peter had to say no to to say yes to this one thing God was doing. Let me give you some context. So in Acts chapter 9, in the close of it, Peter's going down to Joppa. And while he gets there a wonderful believer named Tabitha has died. And so he goes to the home where Tabitha has been washed and prepared and her body is laying on the bed and a miracle happens. God chooses through Peter to to bring Tabitha back from the dead. And it says that many people put their trust or believed in the Lord. So all of a sudden you go from a dead lady to a revival And so imagine what's on Peter's to-do list. He has people to preach to. He has things to set up. He has people to disciple. He has to train some leadership. God is doing a great work here. He's doing something wonderful here. When I look at that story, I go, he had to say no to a lot of good things. Preaching, teaching, discipling people, that's a lot of good things, isn't it? But he had to say no to those good things to say yes to the great thing that God was doing. And friends, as Christians, we, I know we do a lot of good things. You, you come to church, you're good at work, you, you interact in the community perhaps, but are you good at home? Because sometimes we're, we're so busy doing good that we might actually miss the great thing God wants to do in the heart of your neighbor on either side of you or behind you or across the street from you. When we get home, What do we, do? we let our guards down. We don't think about what God's doing. We don't have time. We're too busy. But who is in control of your time? And here's a better question. To whom are we accountable for how we use our time? It's coming a day, friends, when I'm going to stand before God, accountable for the number of days he's given me and what I've chosen to do for him and the time he's given me here on earth. And I hope he doesn't show me those times when I was doing good things and I missed the great thing because I was so busy doing good. I hope he doesn't show me those clips of what could have been because I was just too busy because of the barrier of time. Let's put it this way. In this life, we can only do a few things really well. I think it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus said matters most. When I stand before him, how have I loved God? How have I loved my neighbor? If Jesus summarized all of Scripture to those two things, then don't you think that when it comes to standing before him, we're going to have to kind of give an account for how we've loved God and how we've loved our neighbor? I'm just curious what it's going to be like when we stand before him. I don't know. But if he summarized it that way, I better get pretty intentional about how I choose to do the same. Because God is already working in your neighborhood. Being a good neighbor means simply slowing down enough to be aware of what he is designing right around you. You may be doing good things, but are you missing the great thing for all the little good things? And then we see the fear barrier, the fear barrier. You know, today we, we are almost taught to be a fearful people, and those of you who watch 24-7 news, you, you live in a state of fear all the time because you see the worst of what's happening in our nation and in our world, and then you take that and you look at your neighbors through that filter, and then you begin to have suspicion about your neighbors. And we begin to live, again, more very cocooned because we're afraid. We're afraid of the things that we don't know. And then that fear has a way of distorting our perception. Fear changes not only our image of others, but it also changes what we assume they think about us. And so we live in this fear. And, And Peter definitely had to step toward his fear and overcome that barrier to go do what he was going to do. There's a couple of reasons. One, this guy was a centurion. Now, in just about 30 years or less, Peter will lose his life as a martyr at the hands of Roman soldiers. I mean, could this just be a trap that was set for Peter? I mean, there's great work that God is doing through Peter's ministry. Maybe this was a trap going to see a centurion who claims to be God-fearing. He could have had that fear. He also could have had the fear of what what his friends would think. here's a good Jew going and hanging out with Gentiles. In fact, he's called back on the carpet later after this whole story. Look at it. At the close of of chapter 10 into chapter 11, he's, he's criticized for going and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. There's also that fear of the awkward, you know? I'm a Jew. They're Gentiles. This is really awkward, you know? And how we have a lot of those same fears about our neighbor. How do I have that conversation with my neighbor that I've lived with for maybe 10 years and I still don't even know their name? Hi, I'm that guy that's lived next to you forever and I don't even know your name. Isn't that awkward? We have a fear of that. What if we chose to step into that fear and overcome it by saying, you know what? God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And I'm going to step into that and get to know my neighbor a little bit better. And then we have the lifestyle barrier. Gentiles definitely lived differently than Jews. Many of them were pagans. They worshipped false gods. They didn't honor God. Now, this guy happened to be a God-honoring. We get that part of the story. But for many of the Gentiles, they weren't. And Jews didn't mingle. In fact, in Acts 10.28, like I've said, Peter makes it very clear. You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. So it's known by both parties. We don't do this. Our lifestyles don't mix. But learning to love those who are not like you, that takes a lot of maturity, which we as Christians need a whole lot more of. Learning to love people who are not like you takes maturity. It takes courage. It takes sacrifice. We love our neighbors because we're Christians, not because we are trying to make them Christian. Did you hear what I just said? We love our neighbors because we are Christians. Not because we have an agenda. The moment you turn your neighbor into a project is the time you're going to feel more tension between you and your neighbor. But if you just love them, by seeing what's going on in their life, getting to know their name, getting to see what's going on in in, in their story, showing an interest in them, love, With no agenda? Yeah, eventually you might have conversations of faith, and God may set up a Cornelius-type moment where God is opening the heart of that neighbor to know Jesus. But, friends, our goal is love. In fact, God calls us to love. Love your neighbor. He doesn't say convert your neighbor, right? It doesn't say that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who does the converting? That's God's work. That's God's work. We see it happen in the story of Cornelius. His whole household, as Peter begins to preach, they all get saved. It's beautiful because God was at work. But Peter was willing to overcome that barrier of lifestyle. I know I'm not like you. You guys aren't like me. But God is up to something here. And I'm going to step into this. I'm going to overcome this barrier of lifestyle. I'm going to love as God has loved. In the midst of that, people came to faith. So what happens when we remove the barriers? Let me just give you a quick story and I'm done. Back in 2005, my family moved to Missouri. We found a nice little neighborhood in Nixa, Missouri. And it was interesting because our house had no fences. There's no backyard fence, no side yard fence, there was no fence. And at first I felt kind of Vulnerable. You know, it's like, gee, my backyard is right next to my neighbor's backyard. Where do I stop mowing? I mean, it's, you know, trying to figure out all that because it's like, I'm used to fences. There's no fences. But you know what I discovered? I got to know my neighbor next to me right away. And the kids, kitty corner back from our backyard, who we normally wouldn't know if we had fences, they'd come over to our backyard, we'd play football together. My kids became friends with them. And it was very cool to see what was happening in our yard because there was no fence. It was like a hangout place and we began to know people. And here's the thing I discovered looking back at this story. The only people I didn't know by name were the people who had fences in their backyard. And they had fences maybe to keep their dog in or maybe to keep us out. I don't know, but they're the only ones I didn't get a chance to know in our neighborhood. What happens when we remove the fences, remove the barriers, friends? What would happen in your neighborhood if, I know it's not weather permitting right now, but if you would actually hang out in your front yard rather than your backyard? How about that change how you know your neighbors? What if we stopped cocooning And living in isolation and maybe fear and misunderstanding and instead, drop the barriers. I think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best. He said this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the one who loves those around them will create community. I don't know about you, but I believe God is calling us to something as loving our neighbors, and that is to create a sense of godly community, even in what might seem to you an ungodly neighborhood. Can God really work in my neighborhood? Yes, he can. He does that through people who are willing to overcome the barriers that keep us isolated. I come back to the basic command, love your neighbor. But how can you love a neighbor when you don't know his or her name? How can you love a neighbor when you don't know what's going on in their life? How can we say we love our neighbor as ourselves if we don't start at home with our own literal neighbors? Now, I know this is where it gets hard because this is where it's like, I can't escape this. All of you have neighbors. It doesn't matter where you live. You're going to have some sense of neighbor. We can't get away from this. But what if that's what God intended, was that you can't get away from this? You can't say, well, this message is for somebody else because I don't have any neighbors. Yes, you do. Let's start loving them as ourself and see what God might do.